Hello, Galactic Castaways. This is Alpha Control, the podcast about Irwin Allen's classic sci-fi adventure TV series, Lost in Space. I am your mission controller for this podcast, Colonel Lane August, and I'm joined by my trusty co-controller, Dr. Kurt Kersteiner. Kurt and I are old college chums, children of the 1960s, and most importantly, big fans of Lost in Space. Welcome aboard as we blast off together to celebrate Erwin Allen's Lost in Space. Now, let's get ready to launch. back, folks, for a special episode of Alpha Control, a Lost in Space podcast. Today I'm flying the Jupiter 2 solo without my trusty co-host, Kurt, but that's because we have a very special guest to interview, Mr. David Schechter. David is a highly accomplished and widely published writer and editor, as well as a music, book, and film critic. Since the mid-1990s, he's also been a producer, writer, publicist, and co-owner of the acclaimed CD label, Monstrous Movie Music, specializing in soundtracks from classic science fiction and horror films. Over the course of his professional career, David's formed friendships with several personalities of interest to Lost in Space fans, including composer Herman Stein and actress Francine York, among others. Before we speak with him, a little background information on Mr. Schechter. Originally from New Jersey, David's goal early on was to get into show business writing comedy. He started out professionally as a copywriter for the American Greeting Cards Company. Later, he branched out into other writing fields and became known as one of the best gag writers in the business. David's humorous articles and cartoons have been published in several newspapers and periodicals. After making the jump to the music business, David's become recognized for his extensive knowledge of classic sci-fi and horror film music. As such, he's done special feature commentaries and interviews for numerous DVD and Blu-ray releases such as The Monster That Challenged the World, Tarantula, The Mole People, The Monolith Monsters, and The Deadly Mantis, among many others. In addition, he's written extensively about the subject for various magazines and contributed to books including The Creature Chronicles, The Indestructible Man, and Universal Terrors, 1951-1955. Over the course of his career as a writer, editor, producer, and reviewer, Mr. Schechter has been honored with several awards and accolades, including two Rondo Awards. We're going to speak with David today about his love for classic sci-fi film scores and some of their lesser-known genius composers. He's also collected a treasure trove of fascinating stories and anecdotes. So sit back and enjoy this engaging interview with the amazing David Schechter. Mr. David Schechter, welcome to Alpha Control. It's a pleasure to have you on our show today. And it's an equal pleasure being on your wonderful podcast. Oh, thank you. Well, I'm a big fan of yours and what you do with your record label there, and we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I'd like to start off kind of where I do with all the guests. Tell us a little bit about your early life and your interests in sci-fi, horror, monster stuff. Well, like um, a lot of baby boomers, um, 
the monster movies, when I grew up, the monster movies were showing at like three in the morning, four thirty in the morning. So I spent a lot of my uh, early years setting the alarm on a school <laughs> night because, uh, you know, the mole people was much more important than mathematics. I love those pictures, um, mostly because of the special effects and the monsters and all that kind of stuff. It was only later that you know, I kind of fell in love with other aspects of the productions. But, you know, back then, I mean, just to see a rocket ship blasting off at, you know, 145 in the morning while you're in New Jersey was just so exciting, especially while your parents are upstairs in bed and they have no idea <laughs> what you're doing. And, you know, I, I, I subscribed to Famous Monsters along with one other person in our high school. And, you know, uh, we didn't want anyone to know that we were monster fans because, uh, you, well, I, you don't have to explain that. We would have been the dweebs. I forget what you called people like that back then. I remember one time there was this girl that we, we were both in love with. I think we we're probably in the seventh grade. Uh, you would write in uh, to Famous Monsters and like make a request. Well, we wrote a fake letter putting the girl's name in there. I'll say her name. Her name was Judy Cam, K-A-M-M, <laughs> if she's out there. And we sent it in and requested, I don't know, maybe a photo from Kaltiki or Tobar the Great. Mm. And forgot all about it. And then it was like months later, she came up to us and she was furious because somebody told her that her name had been mentioned in a monster magazine. But, you know, that meant she knew somebody else who was into monster magazines or maybe she subscribed herself. I don't know. That's funny. Yeah, it's, you know, you're bringing back a lot of memories, famous monsters. You know, people forget now because content, media content is so readily available. You know, it started off with VCR tapes and then DVDs and Blu-rays, but all this streaming stuff, just about anything you can think of is available to you. But back in those days, I was doing the same thing you were. I was waiting for the uh, creature feature to come on at uh, midnight or whatever. Sometimes they'd run marathons. You just wanted to watch them no matter how many times you saw the monolith monsters. If it was on, <laughs> you were going to watch it again, right? And it's funny because I have uh, memories that I've shared with you know some other friends who are you know, professionals in the business now. And we talk about, remember the time there was that snowstorm and we had to run home to see Kronos for the first time. And we all remember that because, <laughs> because the movie probably only showed like twice during the entire time I was a youth. You know, one of the joys I remember was getting up Sunday morning when the paper came and taking out the television section and circling all the, the horror and science fiction movies that would be on during the week. Mm, that's you know, great. that was that was the most important thing. And after that, then you figured out when you do your homework around, you know, in between the creature walks among us and tarantula, it was time to do a little bit of geometry. Exactly. Oh, man, the TV guide. I can remember circling those. <laughs> yeah, It was like a weekly event. I think it came out on Tuesdays or Wednesdays of the week prior. And, you know, I would always be waiting for my mom to come home. Did you get the TV guide? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, this we, we didn't get TV guide, but we got the, the Sunday paper in Cranford, yes. New Jersey. Yeah, it was the, the Newark Star-Ledger. So we'd get that. But I wanted to get it as soon as it was delivered, like 4.30 in the morning. So I would get up early. I'd go out. I'd take the TV section, mark it up. And then I was awake, like at 5.30 in the morning. There was nothing on TV except the farm report. <laughs> so I would sit there and watch the farm report for like two hours until uh, the first cartoons came on, maybe at around 6.30 or 7. Oh, yeah. Those are the days. They really were. The kids don't know how good they have it these days. It's amazing. So then later on, you got into uh, your early career. You were involved with writing, correct? That's right. Uh, I graduated from University of Colorado with a degree in anthropology, mm. and they were going to give me a scholarship to go on to graduate school because they considered me a good writer. 
I was the sole nomination for the prestigious Jacob Van Eck Award in Anthropology as the top student in my class. So I met with the dean and he said, so, David, uh, what do you want to do with your life? Uh, and I said, well, I want to be a writer. And he said, that's wonderful. There's a need for somebody who has knowledge of anthropology, as you do, and also can write. So what specific type of writing did you want to do? And I said, well, I want to write for The Tonight Show. And he looked at his watch and he said, well, that's the end of our meeting. And he did not give a prestigious Jacob Van Eck Award that year. And I moved out to California and promptly learned that, you know, no matter how funny you are or aren't, when you send something in an envelope to NBC or somebody like that, it will get returned as unread. So I ended up answering an ad to write greeting cards in Ohio for American Greetings. I remember the ad said, have you ever wanted to write greeting cards? And, you know, naturally my reaction was, no, that's the last thing on my mind I want to do with my life. But, um, you know, I, it was getting to the point where I was like chewing on my shoe for nourishment. Sure. So I took a test. I passed. I went to Cleveland for eight years, and that's how I got started. And then I did uh, humor, wrote for humor magazines, wrote for stand-up comics, that kind of stuff, until I moved back to California. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So tell us about how you got started in the record label business. Give us that story. I, w I would say it was a series of bad career moves. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> culminating in where I am today, not not on your show, but I just mean, you know, uh, yeah. what happened was I, I always loved film music. That went back to the days of looking at the cover for the Dick Jacobs themes from classic horror movies in the back of Famous Monsters of Filmland, where I take my magnifying glass out and look at this little one inch square ad and try to see what films were on there. You know, it's kind of like the deadly mole people and the tarantula walks among us kind of thing. <laughs> it was just this confusing mess of little black and white dots. Right. But I, I really wanted that. And unfortunately, I think it cost $3.98, which was way beyond my budget. Sure. I would have had to polish my dad's shoes for a dime about 30 times a week for a couple of months to be able to afford that. But, you know, you mentioned those Dick Jacobs things. I remember those, too. And they were kind of crappy, you know, if you ever listened to any of the cues from I mean, that's that. but that's all you had, that's, basically. The, the mole people is good. And yeah, the mole people is good. The deadly mantis isn't too bad. And one of the, like the... That, that may be it. But um, they had yeah. better conductor scores on those. But I love the fact that the harp is played by organ and everything. You know, they, they did the best they could. They did the best they could. I know. I yeah. think I think my liner note said something like a string section that wasn't large enough to play bridge or something. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. that's funny. So but I always loved film music from watching these movies over and over and over. Eventually the music kind of sinks in and becomes a part of the experience. Mm -hmm. So when I came out here and I was writing, uh, you know, trying to make it as a writer on California, I took a film music class uh, at UCLA. And I just took it because it was like a meet the composers class. So they had a number of famous film composers who would come in once a week and they'd kind of talk to you about it. It wasn't a class for credit. It was like an adult education kind of thing. Sure. This very attractive young woman sat next to me on the, the first day and her name was Kathleen Maine. And she was taking the class because she was the sole composition student of Ernest Gold, the film composer who best known for winning the Academy Award for Exodus. But he also wrote It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and Judgment at Nuremberg and many, many others. Well, she went to the class because she wanted to hear him talk. And we kind of, you know, hit it off and we ended up going out and eventually we got married and we decided we wanted to work together. 
which I will tell all the listeners out there, if you are in a romantic relationship with somebody and you think it would be fun to work with her or him, no, do not do that under any circumstances. <laughs> uh. You know, we wanted to work on a project together. Well, I had this love of film music, as did she, and uh, she loved White Christmas and Holiday Inn and all that stuff, and, you know, I loved Monsters. So naturally, um, we decided that since there weren't any other labels doing monster music of the type I love, we would do that. So two things happened at the time. One was we were friends with um, the music librarian at Warner Brothers, and we went over there to have lunch with him one day, and we went into the library, and I saw all these conductor books, these shorthand scores, and I was looking at the, the spines of the scores, and it was like the beast from 20,000 Fathoms. <laughs> them the black mm. scorpion the animal world and it was like oh my god this music exists and you know katie took out the the scores because she was a classical composer and she was looking through them and going wow this music is great she wasn't familiar with these movies like I was. And I was also doing some writing in the film music world. So I was going to do an interview uh, with Henry Mancini when he was performing at the Hollywood Ball. This would have been around 1993, I guess. And he, he agreed to meet us backstage before the concert. So we went back and talked to him. And he was showing his books that he was conducting from. And one was The Creature from the Black Lagoon. Ooh. Yeah. And it was like, wow. So we after I did the interview... We're sitting out in the Hollywood Bowl, and he's doing his typical Pops concert thing, the baby elephant walk, Peter Gunn, and all of a sudden he starts playing this really serious dramatic music from Creature. crowd just hushed because it was a whole different experience it was this moodiness and yeah and at that point it was like yeah we got to do something like this so then it was a matter of just trying to find out what would be involved in that and that took a couple of years contacting archives to find the written scores that my wife could reorchestrate that kind of stuff me learning about legalities things like that and it was, it was just a lot of work. It was the two of us, you know, for a couple of years, just kind of learning what to do at the same time we were doing it. Oh, it sounds like a ton of work. You started out, I think your first five releases were basically re-recordings. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And uh, we were originally going to work with another label. And basically, I was going to write the liner notes, uh, which I wanted to be very extensive. I, At that point, film music notes were very cursory. And they were more about the film than the music. And I figure most people who are going to buy the music for the mole people, they're familiar with the mole people. They don't need to be told what it's about. So I wanted to write about the music. And Katie was doing the orchestral uh, recreations, making the scores and parts for the, for the musicians to play. And um, what happened was something I won't go into, but we ended up basically having to be the record label because our partner did not work out. So it was kind of like baptism by fire. 
where we were over in Krakow, Poland, and I had to learn to become a record producer on the spot. Fortunately, we had a wonderful conductor who had worked with the orchestra before, Masatoshi Mitsumoto, and um, nobody spoke Polish. We had a translator who I believe spoke Polish and no English. I think she basically translated from Polish into Polish. <laughs> and, and we talked musically. Um, I remember one time the orchestra wasn't getting the, the impact. We were doing the score for Gorgo, you know, this big Gorgosaurus monster. And the percussionist was kind of laying back. So we talked to our conductor, and, you know, and somehow we got the timpanist, the percussion player, to be convinced that he was Gorgo. He was the monster walking. So play the drums loud. And we would kind of talk musically and we would hum. Sometimes we would play recordings of the soundtrack that I had bought, you know, off the film so they would get a sense of the feeling. And and music is definitely the universal language because we managed to pull that off, I think, very well, in spite of the fact that I think the only word we shared was borscht. Mm. I didn't even know about your label that's the funny thing about it is i heard about your music on another podcast and i looked it up that day and i was like holy cow creature from the black lagoon <laughs> this island earth i gotta get some, some yeah. of this stuff so i'm obviously not handling press well because like i would do a convention and some somebody would come up and go oh my god i i didn't know you were out there how long these i'm the biggest soundtrack monster soundtrack fan how long have you been out there I go, oh, 20 years it's like yeah. oh god what am i doing wrong but uh, that's funny. Well, you know, I've got right in front of me the liner notes to several of your discs that I own, and I'm proud to own them. And I have to say, when you said you want to be detailed, you are so detailed. I can't, you know, some of these are like a book length. And the amount of information in here, the background information, the biographies of the composers, these little tidbits that you tell, they're absolutely precious. But one of the things I, I saw, you said, you're really trying to get the orchestra to play the music with drama because film music is supposed to be something you said that you can feel. You don't want to just hear it necessarily. You said you're trying to reproduce as close as possible what it would have been like on the recording stage when they were actually scoring the film. Do I have that about right? You have it perfectly. You know, at the time when you would listen to soundtrack re-recordings, they were very echoey and they were recorded like classical music where you kind of hear the brass section, kind of hear the strings. But it sounded like the orchestra was, you know, a thousand feet away from you. And if there's a 500 foot tarantula, you know, you don't want it a thousand feet away from you. You want it in your living room there. You want the impact. And the other thing was the, the composers whose music we recorded, they really appreciated the way we did it because... When you recorded in Hollywood, you recorded without echo, without reverb, because you're writing for a certain scene or a shot, and the music has to end when the film cuts to the next sequence. There can't be any reverb or echo after that. So they recorded in what's called you know, a very dry room. So when the musicians stopped playing, the music would stop almost immediately. There wasn't this you know, three or four second echo that you would get if you had the microphones far away from the instruments. The problem is that when you have the microphones close up, editing is a nightmare. 
Mm. Because if you have 80 players and, you know, one of those players happens to make any kind of noise, uh, whether it's with the instrument or, you know, some, a zipper or something, there's some sort of sound, the mic will pick it up. And we didn't have the benefit of recording to like 48 track. Uh, we were recording direct to two track, which means if we had 30 microphones, they were all going down to two tracks. So whatever got put on there, you know, if there's, say, 40 different players playing and one of them gets it wrong, that wrong player is mixed in with all the right players. And right. you have to do it again or edit it or something. There's no way just to say, oh, we hear something from the oboe. Let's remove the oboe. Yeah. Well, let's back up for a minute because I want to ask you just this is a more general question. So those first five releases that you did were re-recordings. Why did you do re-recordings versus just going through the archives and pulling out the original recordings? Were they not available or was there a rights issue or something like that? Can you kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, and you don't need me here because you're answering all the questions perfectly. <laughs> Number one, yeah, the rights issue is one thing uh, because if it was music recorded for a movie, then the production company would own those separate elements there and they charge tons of money. But the main reason is that they weren't available. They didn't exist anymore. The studios had either lost them, thrown them out. Uh, they were destroyed in fires, many fires and floods. So one thing we wanted to do is we wanted to record music that we knew uh, could not turn up and another label could put out the original tracks. That makes sense. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and people had been looking for this stuff for a long, long time. So we were confident it didn't exist. And um, the other thing is we also wanted to control the rights to the music recordings. And you can only do that if you are the one who produces and finances those recordings. Uh, then you can uh, have certain rights that will allow you to have the music used in television commercials, things like that. The reason we got out of that after a while was when we started our label, it was like the end of the golden age of soundtrack re-recordings, or really the golden age of music, because... Our first two albums sold really well, and then we came out with our next one, Creature from the Black Lagoon. Which I think is our best album, and it only sold about half as much. And the reason was, it wasn't that people didn't love the Gill Man, it's that Napster came out and file sharing. Right. And everyone was getting music for free. So, you know, we had spent like $100,000 producing this album, doing all the work, you know, took a couple of years. We put it out, and then within three months, you can go to a website and uh, somebody's bragging about how over 3,000 downloads of the album had been made. And it just, yeah. it wasn't profitable. Yeah, it's a, this kills that business model, doesn't it? Yeah, unless you have, uh, you know, uh, people funding you. But my wife and I were 100% self-funded. And we just could not afford to take, you know, we weren't taking a loss, but we certainly were, you know, it was a lot of work just to break even on that. Yeah. Now, the five releases that you have, most of them are from classic 1950s sci-fi and horror movies. And then The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which you just talked about, same thing. You did Mighty Joe Young, and then the fifth one was This Island Earth. So that seems to be the era that we're talking about, except Mighty Joe Young, I guess, it was the 40s. Um, yeah, a little 40s. Bit, a little bit earlier. What was it like recording back in those days? My understanding is there was it was kind of a limited orchestra that they used for most of these movies. Is that correct? Well, the, there were there were kind of first tier studios and second tier, and then there were like the third tier. 
small little ones like AIP and Republic who weren't necessarily, you know, some of them weren't really studios. They would, you know, borrow lot space from other people. But um, Warner Brothers had an orchestra of about 50 players, and they, they basically had all of the, the woodwinds and the percussion and the brass that they needed. The string section is where it was really reduced compared to a classical orchestra. Mm-hmm. You know, a classical orchestra might have, you know, 24 violins and, you know, first violin, second violins and a whole bunch of cellos and uh, violas and bass. The studio orchestras were pretty small, but they also had fabulous players with fabulous instruments and they weren't playing out to a, um, a concert hall where they needed that volume in the strings, they were playing to microphones, so you Mm. didn't need as many. Um, Universal had an even smaller orchestra because they weren't as big as MGM and Warner Brothers in terms of the the budget. So their contract orchestra was 36 players, and they had a really small string section. I think it was like six first violins, six second violins, uh, four viola, three cellos, and two bass or something. Really tiny stuff. Um, But they were fabulous players there. So what we did was we kind of took a balance in between where in terms of the non-strings, we used the same orchestration that the studios used. But in terms of the strings, you know, our players didn't have Stradivariuses and everything like that. And they probably were not quite as brilliant as these Hollywood players were. So we used a larger string section. We kept the balance right, but we got the string sound to to have that clarity to it and and the right tone. Um, but we didn't let it overwhelm the rest of the orchestra. We wanted the same balance between the various sections of the orchestra. That's interesting. So when you're doing re-recordings like this, what sort of uh, material are you working from when you're doing these? Just just memory. We're just doing it for memory. <laughs> my my, my, my wife had a really good memory there. So, no, um, the way it worked in, in Hollywood was a composer would write a sketch, and he would usually do it with pencil And it would be kind of like a shorthand version. So instead of if there were 36 or let's say there were 20 different instruments in the orchestra and there were multiple versions of certain instruments like the strings. So they would do a sketch of, say, the brass section. They would put certain notes that the brass would play in this area. And an orchestrator would then look at that and he would know what the composer wanted. He would know that the higher notes are for the trumpet, the lower notes are for, you know, either the the trombone or the tuba kind of thing. But that was because not that these composers couldn't orchestrate, they didn't have the time. They had to crank out three minutes of orchestral music a day. And that's a lot of music, especially if you're doing chases and things like that, a lot of notes. So they would do a sketch and then the studio copyist would do a pretty version of the sketch called the conductor's score. So it was still a shorthand version, but it looked really good if there were mistakes uh, in the notation, those would be corrected. Then either the sketches or the conductor score, probably the sketches, would go to the studio's orchestrator. He would write every line. So he would write the part for the first flutist, the second flutist, the three clarinetists, etc., like that. We found some full scores that Warner Brothers had, but Universal had gotten rid of all of theirs. So my wife either used the sketches or if the sketches didn't exist, we used the studio conductor scores. And she would orchestrate in the fashion of, in, in the case of Universal, David Tampkin was one of their orchestrators. So knowing the makeup of the orchestra, knowing how Tampkin worked from looking at the sketches and the conductor scores and listening to what you hear in the soundtrack, she could get a sense of what instruments he was using. And then she would work from those sketches or conductor scores and do her own full scores and parts uh, on the computer 
print those out, and that's what the musicians went from. Well, it's amazing. What a phenomenal talent your wife must be to be able to do that. And and I have to say, I really do think you've captured the feel of what it's like watching those movies and listening to that movie soundtrack music. It's just a real treat. You know, since the kind of the bulk of these ones that we've been talking about are from that universal music department, and there's a particular <laughs> composer that I, I want to talk about that worked back in those days, give us a little idea of what it was like in the 50s at the universal music department when they were cranking out all this music, you know, because apparently a lot of these composers that wrote for these movies that we know and love, many times they weren't even credited. Yeah. Um, on the smaller studios like Columbia and Universal, Sometimes the music director got the credit. And in the case of Universal, it was a man by the name of Joseph Gershenson. He was mainly the businessman. He ran the music department. He was also a good conductor. I will grant him that. Um, he had very good dramatic sense. He started out back east in the orchestra pit doing uh, when there were silent movies and theater productions and everything. So he had a really good sense of drama and everything. But he was not a composer. Mm. And... He was somebody, however, who liked to have credit, and everyone in Hollywood does. Sure. So there were times when you know Universal was just cranking these films out, and a lot of them needed new music. And even though they had a lot of great composers, he would be moving people from assignment to assignment. Uh, and sometimes I don't think he should have moved people from assignment to assignment. I think it was kind of an excuse to say, oh, we have too many composers here, so I'll put my name on here instead. Mm. But there was a, like an unwritten rule that if a composer had 80% of the music uh, that he wrote in a film, he would get credit. And then there are certain times where, you know, you look at the last reel of the picture, reel eight, and all of a sudden the composer who wrote 78% is no longer scoring the last reel. Somebody else is, and Mr. Gershenson would be the only one who had his name on the film. Just worked out that way, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how those things happen. It was kind of like a factory back then. And when, when I first connected with Herman Stein, uh, he had, was supposedly dead because Variety had printed his obituary. I think something like 1985, it appeared that that Herman Stein had died. <laughs> and um, and he was very happy with that because he was, he was, I called him Herman's Hermit. He was hidden away in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, Hollywood didn't treat him right. He kind of escaped from that and uh, was in you know, just wanted to live out his life kind of privately until I came along and forced him into the limelight a little bit. Yeah. But when I first approached him and we were talking on the phone, well, the first thing was, I said, Herman, I want to record some of your music. And he said, why would you want to do that? I didn't have a good answer for it. But, you know, still, I said, I want to do your monster music. And he said, no, 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 you got to do my Westerns. Well, back in his day, Westerns were the big thing. Yeah. And they were prestige pictures for Universal. The, the the monster stuff was just throwaway garbage. He didn't even know the creature from the Black Lagoon was something that anyone was familiar with. That's amazing. Yeah. But he's, you know, do my Audie Murphy Westerns. Do, do, do my Rory Calhouns. And it's like, I can't do an album called, you know, music <laughs> from Rory Calhoun films. So, you know, I told him some of the titles I was interested in, The Incredible Shrinking Man, Tarantula, it came from outer space. And I said, The Mole People. And he said, said, did I do that? And that kind of summed it up. 
because the mole people was like four days out of his life when he wrote, you know, maybe 10 minutes of music. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Heinz Reinhold and Hans Salter wrote the bulk of the score. But he would just, you know, maybe look at the scenes once. He would talk to the other composers. They'd decide who would handle what. And he would write the music. And then the next day he'd be working on a Francis the Mule picture <laughs> or a Western or, a, you know, a, a soap opera or something like that. He never went to the premieres because, you know, certainly his name wasn't going to be in the credit or anything. So he would go from Mon Pa Kettle to Francis to Abbott and Costello to uh, Monster on the Campus or something like that. Well, actually, he didn't write original music for Monster on the Campus. So we'll just say uh, This Island Earth. If I asked you, what were you doing, you know, back in 1973 on August the 3rd? You have no idea what you were doing. Nope. And asking these people what they did back then, it was just a day at the job for them. Yeah, and it's crazy because if you look him up like on IMBD, it's a very sketchy list of credits that he has on there. Maybe it's better today than it was, but you know, looking at your liner notes, I guess he, he worked on over 200 films and TV shows. That's an incredible amount of work over a lifetime, and yet he's like the composer <laughs> no one's heard of until, you know, thankfully you're bringing some light to the guy. I guess he was something of a prodigy and self-taught in music, by and large. Absolutely. He, he went to the library and studied classical scores. That was his teacher for a long time. He was arranging professionally, like by the time he was a young teenager, uh, he arranged for Count Basie when he was 16, and then he ended up being an uh, arranger for Blanche Calloway, who was Cab Calloway's sister. She had an all-girl band back in the 40s. It, she, you know, she was a, a, an African American, and then there was this short, little, bald Jewish guy who was arranging for her. And then he did arranging for the Detroit Symphony, and he came out to to California. But he was he was completely self-taught, and a funny story. Uh, I think he told me this. I don't. Th- I don't know any, any who else would have. But he went out to study with Mario Castelnuovo Tedesco, who taught a lot of people. Jerry mm-hmm. Goldsmith, among others. But he was a Spanish composer, classical composer. Did some films. Really good writer. Uh, Return of the Vampire is one of his wonderful scores. Um, and then There Were None is another one uh, from the forties. But he taught a lot of composers how to uh, score films. So Herman met with him, and the first assignment was uh, write a melody and then write nine variations of it. So like, you know, something romantic, something scary, something this, whatever. Herman went home, came back the next day, and I can't remember if if he said he had done 35 or 37 variations or something. And he handed his assignment to Tedesco. Tedesco looked at it and said, there's nothing I can teach you. Let's be friends. And they remained friends for life. That's incredible. I think I read in one of your liner notes, too, that he told him to think everything out in your head before you write it. And Hermstein was one of the few composers who would do that. He wouldn't sit at the piano. You told a, a little anecdote to me about how Henry Mancini and Irving Gertz would be walking by in the parking lot, and they'd see Hermstein sitting in the car writing down. He was composing basically from his brain. Exactly. Yeah, he had... He had what is called relative pitch, and I asked Herman about that. I wish he were alive because I have a million questions I still want to ask him. Everyone talks about perfect pitch, like you hear a note, you know it's a C sharp or something like that. Herman said that's not as important as relative pitch, which is the interval, the distance between two notes, how much distance there is between a C and a, you know and an F, that kind of thing, by hearing it. 
So because he had this relative pitch, and he might have had perfect pitch too, I don't know, he could just sit there and uh, think orchestrally. You know, I, I'm sure Beethoven did that, Mozart did that, but Herman could do it. And I remember he had a really bad back operation that kind of left him as a hunchback uh, for the rest of his life, for his a lot of his adult life. And Irving Gertz, one of his co-workers, told me that when they would visit him in the hospital and he would be all scrunched up in the hospital bed, he'd be holding a, a full score page and he'd be writing scores out in the hospital bed, you know, mm. with certainly no, nothing musical to check his pitch with. He was a genius, um, definitely. And, and almost like a photographic or, or I guess a musical memory. I think you told me at uh, some point you had talked to him about a particular film he had scored something for. And while he was on the phone with you, he like went over to the piano and just started playing the, <laughs> playing it and hadn't heard it for years. Yeah, I was I was looking at a, a, a cue sheet and I was wondering if there was a similarity to some other piece. And I said, Herman, the, you, you did this movie Ride Clear of Diablo, and there's a cue in it called such and such. Now Herman wrote thousands of cues. Right. So I said, um, I have a question about why you wrote what you did, and he said, Hold on a second. So. I hear him walking away, you know, the, I'm on the phone and he sits down at the piano and he plays not just the music like, you know, happy birthday or row, row, row your boat. He's playing it orchestrationally with flourishes and, mm. you know, almost like a concert pianist. So he's catching all the nuances there. And he said, is that the piece? And I said, yeah. I said, how did you, because Herman had trouble walking around because he was a hunchback and he kept his scores in a closet, like on upper shelves. I said, how did you get to the score so quickly? Did you just happen to have it out? He said, no, no, I just remember it. And I said, Herman, how many times have you played this? He said, well, I never played it. I wrote the music and that was it. So he wrote it like 50 years prior, never thought about it again, and it was in his brain. Amazing. That and is I amazing. And I can't remember where I left my phone two minutes ago. <laughs> oh, that is so true. Well, it must have been really neat to get to know him as well as you did. And I guess he was quite a character as well, huh? Yeah, Herman, Herman I guess this happens with a lot of geniuses where maybe their social uh, abilities are not up there with their intellectual or artistic abilities. And Herman was his own worst enemy. He would not suffer fools, as they say. Mm. And he would also not suffer people who weren't, weren't even fools, but uh, he thought they were wrong. Sure. And he burned a lot of bridges, unfortunately. Uh, he had a really warm side. When you hear his beautiful music, uh, as opposed to the monster stuff, you can see there was such a, a loving person trapped inside Herman, but he was very bitter over some of the things that happened to him, uh, and rightfully so. Uh, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood get chewed up and spat out, and he he was one of them. But I didn't know him back then, before these things happened. It, he might have been very different, but from what I've heard from some of his friends, he was always a little difficult, very opinionated. Uh, really cutting sense of humor. And that's why we got along well together. We would just joke back and forth at two, three in the morning. Mm. You know, one, one thing that helped our friendship is we were both night owls. So he would call me up, you know, when the phone would ring at three in the morning, I would know who it was. And it was Herman who either read a cartoon or had a joke he remembered from 70 years ago he wanted to share with me. But there were times when like, it was his ninth call of the day and I needed a break. <laughs> So the phone would ring and I'd have the pillow over my head in the other room uh, and he'd leave a message. David, are you up? David, are you conscious? David, are you there? Apparently not. It's 9.25 p.m. Nothing urgent. I'll get back to you later on. Don't leave the house. Don't leave the city. Don't leave the car. God bless. Bye-bye.
I have probably like 2,000 phone messages from Herman. Some of them are absolute classics. You would really see his sense of humor, his anger, whatever. This is not the IRS. You may pick up David Bubbler. Pick up the phone alert. This is not the IRS alert. Well, if you're out, I'll leave a message for you. You were right. In 1905 was the special relativity theory. That was about high-speed motion. In 1915 was the, what do you call it now, the general theory. It had to do with gravity. But also in 1950 came the most important theory of all, Stein's left field theory. Remember that. Stein's left field theory, which made the special relativity obsolete, the general relativity obsolete, and made obsolescence obsolete. All right, David, let's see. The time here is 5.03. I'll call you later on. I have some mail here. Uh, the return address says, David, checked. I'm afraid of opening it. Maybe the Unabomber. But I'm going to screw up my courage for, and other things and open it and see what it says. I'll call you later, David. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, I, I like Herman's music so much that my wife and I bought the rights to his, basically to his life. We have the rights to his music, and we also have the rights to him as an individual, which doesn't seem fair that somebody could own you. you know, it's, like, it's like somebody stealing your identity. But I own the rights to Herman Stein, so maybe that, do i have the rights to all baldness or just herman's baldness? i don't know <laughs> but but I, I can give you some of his messages and you can uh do with them what you would like oh that's great that's great well I, i'm jealous i wish i had gotten a chance to meet him but i i feel like i've met him a little bit now that i've talked to you so that's awesome i'm really enjoying this conversation with writer and sci-fi horror music expert david schechter David's passion and sense of humor certainly shine through when you hear him speak. He's got more fascinating insights and stories to share coming up, so sit tight for part two of our interview with monster movie music mogul, Mr. David Schechter. But... Somebody told me this story, which Herman never told me, which was after the studio system broke down in 1958 and uh, all these composers were trying to find work. Herman was approached by Joe Gershenson, who was still running Universal's music department. He said, Herman, I'm getting you a great film. It's for the John Huston movie Freud. And as most people in film music know, Jerry Goldsmith ended up doing that score. And it was. Yeah, and some of that music was like later tracked into Alien and stuff like that. So Joe was telling Herman how wonderful he was to Herman. And he said, you're like my son. I'm like your father. And Herman said to Joe, if you're my father, why do you always have your hands in my pocket? Because there was stuff going on financially at the studio where people in power were siphoning music away from the composers. And certain people like Henry Mancini they knew how to play the game. So it's like, okay, I'll let certain people take money from me if that's what it's going to take for me to get future work. Well, Herman did not think in long terms. Herman thought in terms of why does that guy have his hand in my pocket for my wallet? And when Herman gave that retort to Gershenson, he got blacklisted and that was it. And he only scored one more film and that was The Intruder, which was a Roger Corman movie because he couldn't get hired by the studios. Uh, he was blacklisted in the film world, but not the TV world. So when Irving Gertz was also looking for work and he ended up over at Fox, he convinced Lionel Newman 
to take Herman on. And that's how Herman ended up scoring Voice the Bottom of the Sea and Lost in Space and things like that. Yeah. Herman killed his own career, unfortunately, because he was so talented and he should have had such a longer and more rewarding and profitable career. It's true. And it would have been really interesting to hear his take on Freud, because, of course, that was a breakout score for Jerry Goldsmith. And this is no diss on Mancini or any of these other composers that worked there. But I do think, you know, we missed out on some great work from Stein because of that. Of course, my audience knows him primarily for the Irwin Allen stuff, the um, Lost in Space episodes that he wrote. I think he wrote four episodes in total for Lost in Space. I'm not sure about Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. But um, you want to talk about some of your favorite cues from your music from the Stein catalog? These movies are such classics like It Came from Outer Space. That was a 1953 film. I loved Barbara Rush and Richard Carlson in that one. I love that shot of the meteor. It looks like a meteor coming towards you. Exactly. You know? Yeah, I was good friends with Barbara uh, a few years ago. And uh, whenever somebody would mention it came from outer space, she would uh, want to bring up the fact that why was she wearing that black evening gown in the desert? That really bothered her. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a funny story. Barbara, it didn't bother me. Uh. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah, Barbara's doing a one-woman show called The Woman of Independent Means. And she did this for like 30 years. And she used it to take a cruise around the world, see every country she wanted to see with her sister, because she would perform it on, on cruise lines and everything. So when she opened the show at the Pasadena Playhouse, somebody had written some opening music and closing music and some other things for her. And after the show, Henry Mancini came backstage. They were friends. And Henry said, I, I love the play. You're fabulous. The music is terrible. And she went home, you know, feeling a little distraught, although she was happy that the play was so well received. The next morning, the doorbell rings and there's a delivery man there. And he's got scores that Mancini had written the night before for her. Oh, man. And that became her music for the next three or four decades. But that's wow. that's what Henry Mancini was like. He was such a sweetheart and he really knew how to play the game. Like he and his wife would throw these incredible parties, you know, for directors and producers and he got work out of them. You know, if Herman had thrown a party, it would have ended up as a food fight or something. But uh it's not just the talent, it's also the you know what we call networking now. And Herman is the world's worst networker. And Mancini was one of the best, and it didn't take anything away. From, he needed the talent. Certainly, Mancini was unbelievably talented. So, you know, you can ingratiate yourself to people, but then you still have to produce. Sure. It's funny. Some of these composers, though, are famous for being sort of curmudgeons and... <laughs> You're thinking of Bernard Herman, aren't you? Yeah, I'm, I've heard that about Bernard. And even Jerry Goldsmith, some people that have said from time to time he could be a little bit of a <laughs> of a stick in the mud. But a lot of people will think of Herman Stein for the classic Creature from the Black Lagoon. You're going to hear that three-note creature theme and everything. There was a cue you were talking to me about from It Came From Outer Space, Sandrock. Yeah. 
That is really a beautiful piece. It's very melodious. I think you call it like an Americana type feel. Exactly. And you listen to his family theme for Lost in Space. It comes from that same place. everyone was somewhat typecast so whenever there were jazzy cues or when there was like a kind of a light song thing that didn't have lyrics Mancini would be asked to do that when there was you know a lot of action Hans Salter would be asked Herman did a lot of main titles because his music could be very powerful and out front as Herman called it it was naked music where you couldn't hide behind sound effects or dialogue so he was kind of scared of the main titles but he was so good at it and he did mm. a lot of them and that one in uh, It Came From Outer Space, famously, that has the theremin in it, I believe, as well, right? Exactly. And it's such a short piece. It's actually not really a main title. The main title is kind of like, or the credits are at the end of the picture, which was pretty novel for the time. But Herman, besides doing the, the main titles, he always wanted to do the songs because he could write beautiful melodies, too. And he, or as they called it back then, tunes. He said, I never got a tune. And, you know, Mancini and others got tunes. And that's where the money would pay because you could get sheet music and get paid by that. Whereas there was no other way to make money off your music than, you know, you're, you're working under contract and you get some royalties. But other composers would have their works turned into songs. And if, you know, 500,000 copies of the sheet music were sold, you made money off of that. But as you can tell, you know, from the fa I mean, you could put words to the family theme from Lost in Space and have a tune. Oh, it's beautiful. It's absolutely, yeah. absolutely beautiful. It is. Yeah. And, you know, the music that he wrote for Welcome Stranger as well. Uh, that sand rock reminded me of some of that Welcome Stranger music because it has that almost desert westerny type feel to it, you know. The other thing, David, that I'm just fascinated reading through these liner notes, and I'm still getting through a lot of them, is how much music was retracted from different things in these universal pictures. Like, you were talking to me about a track that Stein wrote for Tarantula called Bringing Down the House. Actually, if I read that correctly, that was originally written for another film. Yeah, um, it was written for a movie, a Tony Curtis crime drama called Six Bridges to Cross. And it was based on a, a true story, a, a bank robbery that took place, I think, in Boston. And it shows these uh, band of robbers creeping up this stairwell. And it probably got put away in a, in a folder or else, or else Herman was familiar with it. And he was in charge of tracking on the film Tarantula. But it's like sneaking up music. If it's good enough for bank robbers, it's good enough for a 500-foot spider who's sneaking up on Professor Deemer's house. Mm -hmm. 
And that's basically the way a lot of this tracking was done. There were these folders at Universal's library that said, uh, and this occurred at, at all the studios' library. So there would be one that said love theme, uh, action, um, suspense. And there was this one folder called neutral. And Herman said nobody wanted their music considered <laughs> neutral. <laughs> so there were times when, you know, they would need a certain type of music. Okay, we need something uh, for somebody sneaking up on something, whether it's a cowboy, whether it's a spider, whether it's whatever. Um, it could be even be in a comedy. And they'd go through the folder and they'd pull out this piece of music and they would adapt it. They'd say, okay, we're going to use bars seven through 29. We're going to change the orchestration here. We're going to change the tempo there. But yeah, that's the way they, they would do it. And uh, you know, the main title for Tarantula, which sounds like a giant spider, was written for Rock Hudson Western. It works well in the Western. It works well in the science fiction movie. That's the thing I've, I've always been preaching. A composer is either good or bad. If he writes good music, well, he can write good Western music. He could write good science fiction music. He would write good comedy music. If he's not good, he can write bad music in every genre. You know, whether... Stein is scoring a Western, a horror movie, a comedy. He sounds like Herman Stein. And all the other composers, Bernard Herman, always sounds like Bernard Herman, whatever he's doing. Right. Um, but when I listen to Lost in Space music, it's his film music. It sounds like This Island Earth. It sounds like Incredible Shrinking Man. It sounds like some of his Westerns. It's just that's Herman's voice. Now, when he recorded for Lost in Space, smaller orchestra, different uh, instruments and everything. But that's Herman. You know, you yeah. can just hear his style. It's kind of like one of my favorite examples is one way you can tell the difference between composers is how they voice instruments, meaning uh, what instruments they use to create certain sounds. And one of the ways you can tell is the brass sound. So what sort of chords do they use when they're using trumpets, trombones, tuba, French horns? You can always tell Stein. Uh, you know, I can tell Mancini, Gertz, all these other composers. William Lava, who wrote great monster music for the Deadly Mantis and Cult of the Cobra. If you want to know what William Lava sounds like, listen to the main title from F Troop. Da, 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 da. That's William Lava's brass voicings. So when when I'm watching the Deadly Mantis, this is giant mantis attacking the you know the base at the pole. I'm thinking you know Colonel Agarn or Corporal mm. Agarn. Yeah, because that's who they were. They had their own style and it would be adapted to whatever genre they were working in. Yeah, that is so true. Well, you mentioned one of my favorites, the This Island Earth album that you guys put out. And that was one where I guess Herman Stein had close to that 80% mark that they were looking for, but he still didn't get a credit on it. But that is some really interesting music. That Metaluna motif or theme that is such an eerie sound. What sort of instrumentation was used to produce that? Well, the main instrument, and he would blend it with other instruments, uh, is uh, Novacord, which was like a primitive 
synthesizers. It's like a Hammond organ, but it had kind of a slightly different sound. It was a staple of orchestras back in the 30s, 40s, 50s. They would sometimes use it along with the strings because they didn't have enough strings. They would have this kind of organ-like electronic instrument adding kind of a bottom to it to give it a little more substance. Uh, but then it started getting used in uh, in the late 40s and 50s, you know, film noirs and certainly sci-fi horror because it had that spooky sound to it. But um, Herman had similar tonalities in his Lost in Space scores too. I hear a lot of This Island Earth in Lost in Space. And I will say, Herman has music in 75 different episodes of Lost in Space. So they were all written for those few episodes you mentioned, those three or four or whatever, but they were used in a, in a lot of them. Oh yeah, tracked continuously. I mean, like you said, he's got the Robinson theme, he's got the Dr. Smith theme. was the signature Dr. Smith music that was used quite a bit. And uh, the music that he did for the derelict, to me, reminds me the most of like the This Island Earth. Um, that whole derelict theme, it just really is eerie. If you listen to Herman's Lost in Space music, one thing, his ability to go, especially with woodwinds, where you go from clarinet to uh, oboe to English horn to combination of flute and this and that, you know, brings so much variety into a piece. So even if it's a simple melody, he could do so much with it orchestrationally. That, yes. Yeah, and I hear that in the Lost in Space stuff. Um, and I still don't have the big box set. Uh, somebody's been promising me that for five years. I didn't buy it at the time. They keep going, oh, I need to get you that box set, so I'll get that it's, one. It's kind of pricey, but it's definitely worth it. But, you know, the the interesting thing about that is some of that music, unfortunately, they had to use these stems. I guess these yeah. are parts that they take out of the, the, off the, the film. Off the film. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. I know this music way too well now. I've listened exactly. to it too many times, you know. But one of his soundtracks it was, I guess it was the last film that he did, that movie The Intruder, which I wasn't familiar with. I guess it was a Roger Corman movie. Yeah, and it's Roger Corman's autobiography, there's something to do with how every film made money, but there was an asterisk, meaning one didn't, and that was The Intruder. And Roger supposedly said, you know, he did a message picture, and it was a flop. 
it, I think it maybe it played at three theaters and that was it for a couple of days. And he decided he was never going to do anything of quality again. If you're out there, Roger, uh, yeah, Roger and I have talked. That's funny. Yeah, that's another thing about that intruder. You know, I, I was reading in your liner notes that it was only 20 players. It sounds so much richer than that. And that, of course, that was how it worked on TV, too. They didn't have that many well, instruments. It, but it, it's his best film. It is, it is a fabulous movie. William Shatner, I think, is yeah. in it. Uh, it's it, it really is amazing. It came out in 62, 61, 62, whatever. But same year as To Kill a Mockingbird. And they're about the same thing. It's about black-white racism from different perspectives. And it's every bit as powerful as To Kill a Mockingbird is in its own low-budget way. But it's really, and Herman was proud of it, number one, because it is a good film. And number two, he got a credit on it. And that was really important to him. You had mentioned This Island Earth and him not getting a credit is, I felt really bad because uh, I did research down at USC at the Universal Archive that they have there. And I saw some press releases for the movie and Herman was credited with music at one point. So something changed at some point. And when I told Herman, we were talking about it uh, when we were going to record it. And I said, it'll be good for people to know that you wrote this score. And he said, well, of course they know they've seen the movie. I said, Herman, you didn't get credited in the picture. And there was Mm. this stunned silence. And I thought, oh, God, David, why did you tell him that? But if he had had his name on it, I think it would have really helped. It would have given a credit where you could say, this is mine. It serves as a business card. You know, as Herman would say, I can't go up to a producer and say, I wrote 17 minutes for this picture. I wrote 13 minutes for that one. Right. Yeah, that's, I mean, he got robbed on that one. That's, you know, it's just a crying shame. Because, again, there's so many great tracks from that. And I I love that score. You know, I think it's a great movie. It's a kind of a standout sci-fi movie from that era, space opera type movie. But I agreed with you. I didn't care for the fact that the mystery science boys decided to spoof in their film that kind of was left me with a bad taste in my mouth yeah they um they got the rights to universal stuff so they were doing you know a bunch they were doing revenge of the creature and you know some of them are deserved some of them aren't and and the people i knew a lot of the people you know actors and directors and whatever special effects musicians uh, you know they, they it hurt them you know when when their films are made fun of if they're terrible films, they know they're terrible films. Sure. They don't mind that. But if it's a good film, you know, just to have – I mean, you can always poke fun at, at anything. You know, right. we'll be able to poke fun at, at at Wonder Woman and today's blockbusters in 20 years with the benefit of hindsight. Absolutely. Well, I really enjoyed the music that you shared with me from The Intruder. And you say that was or one of the scores that he was the proudest of, I guess, huh? Yeah, he's, and it's it's not his best by any stretch, but he got to do it by himself – and I think I think that meant a lot to him. And it is it is a good picture. He was very proud of the the actual movie as well. He you know better than a Francis movie. Right. Uh, <laughs> the yeah. talking mule. They never tackled race relations. I think no. they you know they could have had the different a donkey and a mule kind of problem there, but they just stayed away from that. I don't know. I think you're missing out on some of the broader social themes behind Francis the Mule there, David. We got to have to go back and do a book report on that <laughs> on that one though. No, was it, can I can I say one thing? It was interesting. You're talking about this island there sounding like the derelict. The derelict would have been the first outer space score he did since this island Earth. Even interesting. though, interesting. Yeah, even though it was like uh, ten years apart, that would have been the last. So he would have probably in his brain just gone right back to that and go, "Oh, this is how you do space music." And 
Well, one of the things that's different about TV music, correct me if I'm wrong here, because I'm a total amateur. I just love this genre soundtrack stuff. But the difference I see with TV music, in the TV shows, you've got all this act-out music, act-in and act-out music. really don't have those necessarily in movies. And Stein had some of the best act-out cues. I mean, they just always just go, oh my gosh, what are we going to do next, you know? Yeah, you know, you're very perceptive about, uh, and you've talked to Jeff Bond and people like that. They know they know more than I do in, in a lot of areas. Uh but uh, Herman, you're you're right. If you watch This Island Earth, I, I did a commentary for the, the Blu-ray on that. And I talk about how Herman started and ended cues. He was really good at having that punch to start and the punch to end. And it really shows off in, in that picture. Because what they did in that picture was Herman didn't want the music uh conflicting with the sound effects or anything so whenever there's sound effects futuristic whatever there would not be music so he would the music never kind of just blends in slowly it just it's there wham and then when it's done with the scene you're you know the scene is over Yeah, he was really good at that. Crescendos and decrescendos. Yes, yeah. It gets louder, it gets quieter. And he, yeah, he obviously like that was a lot like his personality now that I, you know, if I want to get really kind of reading into things too much, you know, Herman might have been a little bipolar. I know, I, you know, I don't know what he was. He was, he was spirited and his music is spirited. We'll leave it at that. It is. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that because the sound design on that movie, This Island Earth, is pretty sophisticated for the time. So I can see why he didn't want to mix the two things. Interesting. Well, I'll ask you one last question. Do you have a favorite out of your catalog? If someone had to put a gun to your head and said, pick your favorite project that you've worked on or the one that you enjoyed the most. People are always putting a gun to my head. So this isn't anything I have to kind of like, you know, make up. Um, I'm trying to think. They're like your children, right? It's hard to choose. Well, we, we we do have a bastard stepchild in there too, but I I think Creature from the Black Lagoon is a fabulous album uh, for a number of reasons. Number one, there were like five different composers on Creature. There was old music, new music from different genres. So it's so there's so much variety to the score. It's not just ba ba ba. Although you know people who like that will get to hear that. So I like that, but I also love uh, Irving Gertz's score for the Alligator People, which is on there. You know, just how Irving wrote such great music for, as I think I mentioned in the notes, something like a guy with a pinata on his head or something. <laughs> but I think that I think it's a brilliant score. And I just think it was a well, everything went right on that album. 
the other ones, not all of them, but certain things took a lot more work than we would have liked. That one worked really well. I thought for sure we'd win a Grammy, but they're not going to give a Grammy to the creature from the Black Moon when it's up against, you know, something more prestigious like a, you know, a Dvorak symphony or something. But of the, the original soundtracks, I love the brain from Planet Aris. And that's, we didn't do a re-recording of that, but my best friend is uh, Joyce Meadows, who is the star of that movie, uh, along with John Agar. And it just took me like 15 years to find the original music for that. And it was in all sorts of different places on different tape reels. And just finally getting that damn thing out after all those years was, was very rewarding to me. And it's fun because I think it's the best soundtrack ever written for a giant sex craig killer brain from outer space. <laughs> okay, here, here. Well, the broader point you're making, I think, is accurate, and it certainly applies to some of the Lost in Space episodes. The music, in a lot of ways, elevates it and makes things that maybe aren't that scary, scarier or dramatic or what have you. I want to read just a little quote that I wrote down because I thought it was so beautiful, but this is your words from one oh, of your... Oh, God. Yeah, it says, We hope... The monstrous movie music series serves as a tribute to the many gifted composers who labored hard in these pictures while receiving little or no recognition. Watching these movies will attest that the composers were the true Frankensteins, the ones whose artistic talents brought the monsters to life. And I think that's very well said. I appreciate I had, it. They had great ghostwriters, I'll tell you. <laughs> that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Well, since you mentioned it, you've become friends with quite a few of uh, the stars and people that were involved with these films over the years. Uh, you want to do a little name dropping for us? Oh, I don't like to name drop too much. But, you know, it's like I would interview people and the ones that I liked as people, in a lot of cases, we, you know, we stayed friends and in some cases, very close friends. And then there were a lot of people where you meet them once and you go, oh, my God, I hope our paths never cross again as long as I live. There's there's a lot of my I, one of my best friends was Julie Adams uh, and who, Creature from the Black Lagoon, but one of one of the best actresses of her generation. And you know she she was quoted as saying, "When I die, all they're going to mention is Creature from the Black Lagoon." And she was right. She passed away last year, but I was fortunate to be able to work on a few projects with her. I edited uh, helped edit her memoirs, The Lucky Southern Star. And um, she she was just such such a wonderful, wonderful, intelligent, really talented person. Um, uh, very close friends with Colleen Gray, who people in the sci-fi business think of as the leech woman. Mm. But she was in some of the great film wars. You know, she was in The Killing. She was in a Nightmare Alley, um, Red River with John Wayne. And she was like like my soulmate. And I she died. It, I, I lost like six of my seven best friends in a period of three years because they all came from that era and mm. they started falling like a house of cards. But, you know, you need to be around people younger than 80 and 90, although Marsha Hunt is like 102 or 103 now and she's still going strong. But um, isn't it remarkable how many great female leads they had in these monster movies? They not only were beautiful, many of them were talented, like you mentioned, Julie Adams. I mean, they really were good actresses. I mean, and they were easy on the eyes. I can tell you that was <laughs> I fell in love with a lot of those ladies when yeah. I was about 13 years old. You know, well, Universal did not know what they had or they didn't care because they had Julie Adams, Barbara Rush and Piper Laurie. 
and they never appeared in each other's movies. They could have been doing chick. These are three unbelievably talented actresses, and they were basically eye candy. And, you know, Piper's memoir was all about her having to get away from that universal thing. And Julie had to leave the studio uh, for that. And, you know, and Barbara had the same problem. They had to scream and have Tony Curtis rescue them. And these were, you know, really professional actors. Uh, You know, they weren't actresses. You know, they were actors. Their craft was very important to them. And, you know, they were like you said, you know, they they put the movies out for people like you who would just appreciate their beauty. Mm -hmm. So you're basically responsible for the fact that they felt unfulfilled. Oh, sorry. I still love them, though. I got to tell you, I was always jealous of John Agar and uh, Richard Carlson. They always seemed to (laughs) you always knew they were going to get the girl in the end, you know, rescue them from the spider or something like that. That was great. Well, I guess you had a little brush with, uh, didn't you tell me that you were friends with one of the guest stars on Lost in Space at some point? Absolutely. I was um, helping Colleen Gray, of, of all things, at a, at a convention she was at, signing photos and everything. And um, this beautiful, beautiful blonde uh, came up to Colleen and they hugged. And it turned out they knew each other because they used to have the same masseuse, which is, you know, like, yeah. Yeah, this is Hollywood, you know, so they, they had the same masseuse 25, 30 years ago, or whatever. And it was Francine York. And, oh. and I knew Francine from seeing her on television, whatever. But um, and I think we had met one time, whatever. And she was wearing a low cut red outfit. I shouldn't say I think it's burned indelibly mm. in the rest of my life. <laughs> Francine was uh, go, was working on or going to be working on her memoirs. And she asked Colleen if she knew anybody who could write. And Colleen knew that I had just finished working on Julie's. She said, why don't you talk to David? And Francine and I became very, very, very fast friends and for years. And we were, you know, we were socially together. We were, you know, Mm. it, it just everything. We just hung around each other. I ended up working on her memoirs, which unfortunately have not come out because she died just before they were going to be done. But um, Francine and I were, yeah, we're very close. And one of her favorite roles, and she was in, you know, countless television shows, uh, not too many movies, but um, she was a regular fixture on television in the 60s, 70s, and even the 80s. And uh, pretty much her two favorite roles were Lydia Limpet on Batman uh, and... Oh, yes. Yeah, and yeah, she's always wearing these skin tight outfits. Yes, Miss Lippet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She she looked good in tight clothing. I'll tell you, she looked pretty good in in loose clothing as well. We we go out to eat, and at the time she was probably late seventies, and we there was this Chinese restaurant Ventura Boulevard we would we would go to once in a while, and we'd walk in there, and she would be decked to the nines as as i think they used to say or whatever dressed to the nines and uh you know with a hat and the this and the that and she would whisper to me you know before we'd go someplace say you see this and she'd point to the hat and the the scarf and the shoes and the, she'd say 16.99 at the thrift store <laughs> and it, it wasn't it wasn't that she was cheap she just loved the fact that she could dress because people weren't wearing clothes like that anymore and she w- had that old hollywood Styles right. of so we love she loved wearing these ostentatious things and she looked just unbelievable. So we'd walk into the into the restaurant, past the bar, and all the twenty something guys would swivel in their bar stool and their jaws would drop and their tongues <laughs> would come out. 
But yeah. her, second, her second favorite role or first favorite was Noble Neolani from The Colonists. Um, Great outfit, that one, too. Oh, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and it wasn't originally. Do you know about the original outfit? No, no. Tell. Originally, she was going to wear like a suit of armor, like a knight suit of armor. Oh yeah, so she was wearing the suit of armor the, the first day she was in costume, and June Lockhart. They they were always playing pranks on the uh, on the cast. So June Lockhart came out. I forget if it was with a crayon or a marker, and she drew two boobs on the suit of armor. <laughs> Where, yeah. And Irwin decided that no, they weren't going to go with the suit of armor. So they had, um, what's his name? I remember her, her uh, nickname for him, the custom. Yeah, Zastabnevich, Paul Zastabnevich. Yeah. Was, I think, did she call him Paul Z? Everybody um, called him Paul Z because. Yeah. Yeah. And um, what happened was he made this um, latex suit for her. And the next day, June Larkart came out and she took her fingers to poke. Francine in the boobs thinking she was like wearing the suit of armor under it or something and she hit Francine's real boobs and said oh boy sorry (laughs) and uh, Francine said she wasn't sure exactly what June's reaction was to that was she embarrassed was she whatever apparently there were these little factions on the set and it's really hard for a guest star which Francine was when you're going on a show and there's a camaraderie or connections and you know sometimes there's people and i'm not necessarily talking about loss in space but there are people who like each other and people who don't like each other and you don't understand the relationships and all of a sudden you're there and you know you're an outsider and sometimes the other cast members are very welcoming sometimes there's one person who will be welcoming and other times you know they just leave you out of everything and you feel kind of like a fifth wheel there um francine really loved uh Dr. Smith. She loved Jonathan very much. And she said he was very, he was more isolated from the rest of the crew. He was kind of in his own New York theater world kind of thing. Mm. And she and Francine hit it off and she loved Billy a a, a ton. But um, she just had a fabulous time because when she was little, she would always play, she had a very strong personality. She was like a female version of Herman Stein with a voluptuous body. If you could picture a, a short, bald, hunchback man with a fabulous body and a gorgeous face, <laughs> that was Francine. Anyway, she, um, when she was little, she would always play the princess, and she would have a scepter, and she would be in charge of all of her friends. They would be her minions. So she said this was the perfect role for her, and she really got into it. And she loved being carted around on her carriage and waving her her scepter in the air. Yeah. She worried because she said there was this one speech when she was standing up on something and she was addressing the Robinsons, you know, telling them how she's in charge and this and that. And I don't know if I should mention the name. I'll leave it up to you. But she said um, June and Mark were looking up at her and she saw them both mouth the words, you. (laughs) (laughs) you can believe that. And she didn't know if they were like in character doing that. Or if, as far as I know, there weren't many other, like, or was she the only, like, woman guest star who was one of power? Yeah, I don't I don't remember another role quite like that. They might have just been trying to throw her off on her speech, yeah, you know? It, it's very possible. And yeah. she said that for the rest of the shoot, she wasn't sure. She said June was very friendly and very nice and invited her into her dressing room for cookies. But she always wondered, you know, were, were they talking about her in the role or talking about her as a person? Because knowing Francine... 
to stay because Francine was a great actor and she would be in the part. So even when they were offset, she would still be the noble Neilani, you know, probably Mm -hmm. poking people with her scepter. Yeah. I guess Irwin was a fan of hers as well. Yeah. Irwin was a big, big fan of hers. She had the same kind of relationship she had with Jerry Lewis. Jerry, Jerry had a thing for Francine. Irwin had a thing for everyone had a thing for Francine. She, she never married. And, uh, I won't go into that, but, uh, why she was waiting for me, but, it, it, <laughs> but she said, Jerry and Irwin were very similar in that they were very Jekyll and Hyde is they were extremely controlling on the set. The actors were their kids basically, and they were in charge of them and they were looking after them and they could be very bossy. And then they also had that other side where they could be very friendly off the set kind of thing. So Francine had kind of uh, just, let's just say, kind of some personal relationships going on. She went out with Irwin for a number of years on and off. Um, She found him endlessly fascinating because of this duality. Um, She said he was, I think Francine was, I think, 5'8". And she said Irwin was 5'9", she thinks. But he was obsessed with the fact that he was shorter than he wanted to be. So whenever they would go out somewhere, he would bring pillows with him and we, he would be sitting on pillows to elevate himself. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, she, and she said they would always wonder, well, does he have hemorrhoids or something? <laughs> That's funny. That is crazy. And let's see, what, what else did she say? And she remembered the first thing I said, what's the first thing you remember about him? She said, well, his hair, because he was balding. And she said he would comb it. For, he let it grow really long and back. He would comb it forward. And she said it was hard and wiry, and it always looked identical for day in and day out. And somehow they hit it off, and you know they dated for a while. In fact, Irwin's the wife at the who became his wife after that. She tried to co- convince Francine to marry Irwin, but Irwin ended up marrying her instead. But yeah, he he definitely had a thing for her, and she was in a lot of his um his productions. She didn't always have big parts, and this was very similar to Jerry Lewis. Jerry Lewis wanted her in a lot of movies. So I think she was in more movies than almost anyone else, uh, but she only had bit parts in them because he liked having her on the set and yeah. or liked having Francine on the set. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to think. So she she had another good role in um, Land of the Giants. Um, she was in, oh, gosh, what was that? Barbara Rush was in it. Oh, The Night the Bridge Fell Down. Right, yeah. She was in the, um, what, what was that short 10-minute, uh, uh, he did a 10-minute promo they ended up oh. doing it as a TV movie. Was it City Beneath the Sea or yeah, something? City like Beneath that? the Sea. She was in the original. And she was very disappointed. I think it was the head of ABC who didn't want her in the uh, the TV version. Um, she was also in the t- Time Travelers. Mm-hmm. Uh, Assault on the Queen is is that one? The Queen Mary. Um, yeah, she was in a lot of his his things. And um, she well, she just, sounds like a fascinating person. I mean, I I can imagine why Erwin and, and Jerry wanted to have her around. She's oh yeah, beautiful, well, beautiful and uh, and smart and uh, holds her on. It sounds like yeah, uh, yeah. She's a really really talented, and she's one of those people like Julie Adams, you know, and Marilyn Monroe. Of because of their beauty and body, they didn't get treated seriously as the actors that they were. You know, it, I, I think Julie came to terms with that. Francine never did because Francine knew she should have had a better career and she should have. Any chance that her memoirs will ever uh, get published, do you think? Or is that a done deal now? I have no idea. I really have no idea. I have nothing to do with it. 
Well, I think I'm being a little bit greedy with your time, David. So why don't we uh, shift gears one more time here? You've done a lot of things, but your latest project, you're going to break into the world of podcasting. And I've gotten a little sneak preview of that. You want to tell the uh, audience about what you're working on? Well, I saw your podcast and I said, yeah, that sounds like fun. Yeah. No, I was I was writing screenplays and not getting them sold or optioned or anything. So I thought, okay, well, I'm I'm going to try to kind of produce my own dramatic thing. So I was going to write a a book a- after I got divorced. I I'm in the middle of I'm on about the eighth year of being single on the dating circuit, and uh, I would always come home, you know, after a disastrous date. And it was funny because people like Julie and Francine. I would come home because they know I I was out on a date. And I'd come home and there'd be all these answer uh, messages on my answering machine for them saying, how did it go? How did it go? Because they were all <laughs> hoping I'd find somebody. And I would tell them these stories about what happened. Uh, and, you know, you take some of these women, you know, they were married three times. They they dined with kings and queens. They knew it all. They saw it all. And I would tell them about the behavior of my female date that night. And I would say, can you explain that to me? And they'd go, I have no idea what that was about. (laughs) So, yeah, so I started being kind of fixated on the differences between men and women and how they just do not understand each other, no matter how long they're around each other. So I just decided instead of writing a book about my travails on the dating thing, I would actually create kind of a vehicle to act it out. So I came up with this idea of doing a a show about a couple who somehow managed to find each other, Larry and Lisa. They're madly in love with each other. And because they found each other after lifetimes of terrible dating like me, uh, they want to share all their expertise on on relationships with their listening audience. The only problem being they're totally clueless about what they're talking about. They're in a very dysfunctional relationship, mm. but somehow they love each other. And uh, it was kind of a chance to get back to my comedy writing. and. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I always put a little bit of comedy in my DVDs and in the books, but this was a chance just to be silly. And it's very funny. It's very funny. I, I enjoyed it. Lisa and Larry's love lessons, I think, is the title that you've uh, settled on. Is that correct? Yeah, and the it was originally, and we still use the name in the show. Is to, it sums them up. The name of their their show that they're putting on is called Lisa and Larry's Untitled Relationship Show because they can't even decide on a title for their show. <laughs> so that kind of that kind of sums up the thing. Uh, we're not officially a podcast yet. We will be probably in about three weeks. I just came back from a four day podcast convention in downtown LA. So supposedly now I know more about podcasts than I did before that. And uh, we hope to launch in a couple of weeks, and we'll we'll see what happens. But it's it's like old time radio, Burns and Allen, Abbott and Costello, oh, yeah. Yeah. with yeah. a modern twist. Because you know we're actually talking occasionally about two people, you know, sleeping together. We don't go into details, but right, you right, can right. actually mention that they were sleeping together, kind of thing. Oh, that's great. Who's your co-star? Who's your co-star? She is Suzanne Watley, and it's it, it, yeah, it's funny because I don't listen to the radio because I'm too busy. Uh, doing those damn DVD commentaries and everything. No thanks to Tom Weaver, uh, who gets me involved in all these ridiculous projects. So I don't listen to the radio. So when I was trying to find an actress to work with for about nine months, and most actresses, for people who don't live out in Hollywood or don't aren't in that world, most actresses are um, clinically insane. So mm. I spent eight months with all these different actresses before realizing, oh, my God, I'm going to be in a home if I work with this person. And I was ready to throw in the towel. And then I got a phone call for this woman called Suzanne Watley. She sounded nice. We met, hit it off. 
uh, so people would ask me when I would send them samples of our thing, they go, oh, I really like your um, your your co-star. Who is she? I said, oh, it's Suzanne Watley. And they go, oh, my God, you're working with Suzanne Watley? And it's like, yeah, why? Do you know her? <laughs> She's the morning host for NPR out in Los Angeles. So that's what all the people who aren't listening to shock jocks, that's who they're listening to every morning. Apparently, she's a local celebrity, but what did I know? Yeah, she's great. You both are. It's got a lot of character to it, and I think it's going to be a great success. So we'll definitely, on our show notes for this one, we'll link to your webpage, and we'll be standing by for news for the official launch. Since you went to that podcasting convention, you're going to have to teach me some things, because uh, I... <laughs> I, think I don't know anything. I have no. I've got no professional. I think you're doing pretty well. I think you're yeah. doing really, really well. I love your show. It really yeah. is. I mean, I'm learning so much about Lost in Space. I, I just, you know, I have the box sets. I watch the episodes, but I don't know anything about it other than the Colonist, the one episode yeah. that yeah. Francine was in. But I've been watching your thing for the past couple of months, and it's just fabulous stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very grateful for that compliment. Thank you so much about that. But I'm learning a lot too. I. I loved the show as a kid, but I didn't know there was so much. And I didn't know it had such a cult following. It really, I mean, the people that love this show, love it. And they're on Facebook posting every day, which I'm happy for. And they're ready to correct me if I get a little detail wrong, So, which I do <laughs> occasionally. But we try to keep it fun. I was going to say, I think it was the first or second color show I ever watched. And I remember Batman was the other one. And mm. we had just gotten a color TV set. And my God... The opening credits for Lost in Space, when those little dots, are the, mm -hmm. oh my God, we're in a new universe. Amazing. It, yeah. it really was. So, David, as we round things out here, what else are you working on? Anything coming up? Any new releases from uh, Monstrous Movie Music on the horizon? Or is that top secret right now? Um, we'll say it's top secret. I, what I've been doing is I've been helping other labels for the past few years. So, you know, they'll call me up and go, do you have any idea where the scores for so-and-so might be? I go, yeah, they're in my closet. Why? Do you want to do something with them? And so I've been helping some labels there regarding, you know, more MMM productions. We'll just have to see. I'm doing more DVD commentaries, uh, working on Universal Terrors Volume 2, which was the sequel to Volume 1, which was the sequel to Creature Chronicles. Wow. Um, and I'm also self-publishing a book. If there are any Scottish Terrier lovers out there, and I know that Lost in Space has a huge Scottish Terrier following. Um, of course. Writing, yeah. I'm just actually writing my first children's story. It's like a Wizard of Oz story about two Scotties called The Tale of Two Scotties, of course, T-A-I-L, because that's trite and cliched, and that's why I'm using it. And um, we'll see how that one does. I'm on like 5,000 Scotty groups on Facebook, so we'll see if anyone has any money. Well, I'm glad you're making good use of that anthropology degree. Exactly. That's paid off in spades, David. That's yeah. awesome. Especially okay. on the dating circuit. It really, really helped there. <laughs> Uh, well, this has been a treat. I'm really sorry that I kept you on so long, but not so much because I've enjoyed talking to you and I've really enjoyed getting to know you. We're going to link to the MMM webpage. We'll link to the... Can you link to my bank account? That would be... That would be <laughs> Donations accepted. Exactly. Uh, we'll link to all your websites and any place else that you can think of in our show notes. It's just been a pleasure having you on board today. And David, I appreciate it so much. And I want to say thank you for everything. It was just more enjoyable than I thought it would be. And I'm going to figure out a way to get Lost in Space into Lisa and Larry's love lessons. Ah, okay. Promise. I will do okay. that. All right. Well, then tune in. Maybe <laughs> maybe Lisa will dress up as the noble Neolani for, you know. Ah, ah. okay. You got to put some little references in there, little Easter eggs that <laughs> people can look for. 
Well, thanks again for being so generous with your time. And uh, it's been a real pleasure. And I hope to get to talk to you again real soon, David. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It was great being on your show. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a blast talking with David Schechter. His wealth of knowledge about classic sci-fi and horror film music is truly amazing. Check out his fabulous CD label, Monstrous Movie Music, as well as his books. In the meantime, we will be back next time with another episode of Alpha Control, where Kurt and I will get back to reviewing our beloved original Lost in Space. Until then, take care, and we'll see you soon. Thanks, fellow Galactic Castaways, for listening to the Alpha Control Podcast. Please leave your comments or questions on our Facebook page, Twitter, or email us at alphacontrolpodcast at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast via libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Or through iTunes. If you like the show, please leave us a review as well. Thanks again. And we'll see you next week, same time, same channel.